0: Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 12, He Never Fought Back. Why do we think that exertion of power is the way to bring the kingdom? What really happened at the cross? Did the Father turn his face away? We discuss those questions and more with Alan Hawkins, senior pastor at New Life City Church. Uh, when I first met Alan, uh...
1: 2006, man, it'll be 12 years soon, uh, we were leading a journey of compassion to uh, Thailand. And all of a sudden, we had a whack of pastors from all over the world came into that. And I met this guy, and uh, we seemed to get along all right. And uh, you invited me to come to your church, come and do a weekend. And uh, so I did that in almost right away, January uh, 7. And then that started a pattern of uh, me coming about once a year. A few times I came twice a year. And uh, I quickly said to my wife, I just found my favorite church of any church I (laughs) preach at in the world. (laughs) And I used to make sure I told your people that. And uh, so a few years into that, I asked Alan to become a, a member of our Uh, Impact Nations uh, board, which he kindly agreed to and served on that board for a number of years. Um, And then the last piece of this, um, in terms of Impact Nations, was almost five years ago now, we did uh, an Impact Nations conference in Albuquerque, and during that conference, the Lord went out of his way to shock me and say uh, he wanted us to move down to Albuquerque. So um, a 60-year-old Canadian moving (laughs) to America is, it takes some exercise. (laughs) And uh, so that happened. So we've been friends for a long time. Alan is a really fine teacher. Uh, I sit under his teaching on those uh, weeks, sometimes more than occasional weeks when I'm actually in town on a Sunday. And uh, one of the biggest thrusts of Alan's teaching is teaching on the covenant and just that whole uh, line of, of covenant from from creation through uh, to Christ. So, Alan, I'm delighted you could be with us today. You're, uh, we look forward to your insights.
2: It's good to be here, and um, only the thing, only thing I would add was that I actually think I met you before that trip at a Randy Clark. Oh. At one of the Randy Clark meetings where you were speaking.
1: Oh well, that's possible. And I
2: briefly met you. Okay. And then you connected with John Mullen, and he connected us.
0: Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. Very good. I I guess I'd forgot that. So, I'm going to jump right into the meat of things. We're just going to jump right into the deep end because, Dad, you said something during uh, episode nine, which was entitled "The Crowd Is Getting Restless," and it's this whole the last three episodes is this kind of mounting confrontation between uh, Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. Right. Uh, and uh, during episode 9, you made a statement. You said it wasn't the wrath of God that put Jesus on the cross. It was the wrath of man. Uh, and that got me thinking about... Let's let's discuss a little bit about what really happened on the cross. Uh. Uh, because there's two... Uh, I'm not a theologian, and I don't pretend to be, but my understanding is there's two two ways of really looking at what happened on the cross. Uh, they've got fancy names. One is Penal Substitutionary Atonement, and one is Christus Victor. Um, I'm wondering, uh, Alan, maybe you could help us define uh, one or both of those terms, and then let's just talk a little bit about... Uh, the difference between them and what some of the implications of that. And if is. I can, just
1: before he does interject, there's probably four major yes. theories of there atonement. All right. Uh, but we, we're parking on two of them right now. Okay.
2: Yeah, that would have been the first thing I would have said, was that, that in terms of theories of atonement, there there have been probably four main ones. and But these are the two that among... Um, well, first of all, among evangelicals, substitutionary atonement has been the primary view. Um, Christ died in my place. Uh, the in recent days, because of some reaction to how that is how that is understood, there's been a, a bigger emphasis on Christus Victor, which is victory over the dark powers, mm-hmm. and. Um, I'm a little bit of a, I'm a little bit of a it, interesting because first of all, there's never been an orthodoxy settled by the church on atonement like there has been on the person of Christ. So if we take the ecumenical councils of the church, the ecumenical councils of the church settled on a, a doctrine of of Christ that he's fully God, fully man, and interestingly enough. Most of church history, all of the church, has pretty much settled on the, the person of Christ. But when it comes to the death of Christ, that's been up for debate. Later, the Catholic Church uh, settled in on on a, on a view. But the evangelical church, there's no one view of atonement that we say this is orthodoxy. Although, again, if you come from a fundamentalist evangelical background, one of the fundamentals of the faith is the penal substitutionary uh, atonement um, in my years and, and Steve would would probably want to I'm happy to dialogue on this see I see both theories as testified to in scripture hmm. and I see the caricatures of both theories creating the biggest problem we have I'm about to bang on your table <laughs> Uh, uh if you if you understand them in their best presentations, then you would say there's scriptural attestation to, to both of these views. I agree. But if you but if you take them in their in their worst presentations, then you get strong reaction. And and for instance, uh, the the strongest thing that I'm hearing nowadays is penal substitution can't be true because it's God torturing His Son and extracting an amount of punishment suffering from the son and we can't see a father torturing his son um, part of that has come because there's been a whole new emphasis on the fatherhood of god that that had, had fallen away now for me i'm i'm, I'm telling you because also because of my covenant teaching i can't completely get away from substitutionary atonement um, i see it attested to well genesis 22 God will provide for himself a sacrifice and the foreshadowing of Jesus. I don't know uh, if if you want to jump in here and dialogue with me on that. Um,
1: I'm happy to keep listening.
0: (laughs) (laughs)
2: Well, what we have to do is we have to say, what did the cross do? And so that goes to the whole story of the Bible. What is the problem? And covenant actually goes from, from creation to new creation. And new creation is the restoration of original creation without without the impact of sin and the powers. So when I go into Genesis, because I go there for everything, when I go into Genesis, I find attestation both to the problem of the powers and the problem of sin brings death. So now the problem of death has to be dealt with. Atonement is... Jesus, the seed of the woman, experiencing death, as the book of Hebrews says, he tasted death for every man. And and because he has the power, I think as Hebrews also says, the power of an endless life, his capacity to overcome death, where we don't have that capacity to overcome death. Now all of this leads into myriads of questions um, let me just touch for a minute on victory of the powers. One of the things that has been expanding in my mind as I'm studying Genesis also is a fresh understanding of the powers.
1: Hmm.
2: And um, in, my, in my latest iteration of what I call my Emmaus Road my covenant teachings, I made a big deal of this. Um, Steve, I'm actually working with the, the idea that there's not a primordial fall of the powers but that the fall of the powers is simultaneous with the fall of man; <laughs> that the fall of the powers represented um, a a descent from the plan of God and a and a seduction of man to into that descent. So that the idea is that when the tempter tempted man into sin. That was also the tempter rejecting the plan of God, of bringing forth um, a man who will rule in the universe, and and uh, a lot of this comes from. Um, uh, well, if you're gonna if you're gonna say it's victory over the powers, where the powers come from, and if you're gonna say the, where the powers came from, we pretty much believe the powers were the angelic hosts. That do seem to have been created before man.
1: Yes, I think so.
2: So I would. So I agree with that. That there's a there's a creation of the powers before there's a creation of mankind. But I find a lot of interest now in the idea that the fall is simultaneous. I don't know if you've ever
1: heard that. No, I haven't. But what about uh, Ezekiel 14? What about you know? Well, I'm sure you've thought of that.
2: If we go into Ezekiel 14 and, and uh, Isaiah 28. Those are those are descriptions of it, and what the question then becomes um, is: Does the intention to sin constitute the fall? And we're off on yeah. speculation. Yeah. Um. But, but, but the one thing we do know is that is that the powers are in rebellion, and that the powers are working against mankind. What we don't know is why. Um, I think what's stirred me up um, a good bit is a fresh look. Let me let me see if I can pull it up quickly. A fresh look at uh, Psalm forty two. And um hmm, wrong Psalm. Um, uh, the idea that, that the Lord said that where the where the um the powers are called the sons of God. Mm. So there you have a whole entering into the book of Genesis, who are the sons of God, Genesis chapter six, six. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah and 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 the fall.
1: Yeah.
2: Um so I think there's no question that there's two things being done in the in the in the in the, in the atonement. God is dealing with both the powers and he's dealing with the problem of death caused by sin. Mm-hmm. So for that, I'm I still have a I still have a view of, of of substitution, but the view is not a view of the father torturing the son, but a view of the father and the son agreeing together to solve the problem of man and the self-giving love, the self-emptying love of Christ. Yeah. Your your great teaching on that you always bring on Kenosis.
0: So why do you think, just before we talk about Kenosis, because I want to go there, but why do you think that the evangelical church so often jumps straight because I really like what Alan just said in terms of it's a it's a partnership between father and son to uh, to enter into this mm-hmm. incredible exchange. Why does the evangelical church so quickly want to come up with the oh yeah, but it's punishment and looking at it through that lens of it's a father being cruel to the son on our behalf as opposed to a father and a son uh, as part of a triune God entering into this incredible exchange, well, there's a couple of reasons that I I suspect.
1: Um, one, substitutionary atonement really doesn't show up until a guy named Bishop Ansel at the end of the 11th century, and and he saw atonement through his worldview. Which was a feudal worldview that you had a lord and you had these serfs. Okay. John Calvin, in early in the 16th century, he took that and he he kind of overlaid a legal view that, sure. um, and so his whole his worldview was a legal one, and he 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 deemed righteousness to be about what is. Right in the law. And, of course, Calvin had a huge influence on the evangelical church. Secondly, and this we could go down this huge long road, what is the wrath of God? And uh, I tend to believe, in agreement with smarter people than me, that it's pretty connected to... Um, Kind of the permission of God, that that He allows consequences. I think. I think it's uh, in,
0: in Romans. Help me out with what chapter it is, but uh, Paul talks about He gave them over to yeah. their, Romans, their
1: Romans one. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And that is ultimately. And that's really how I see it. But, it. but is, I yeah.
1: think I think evangelicalism. Boy, we get going down a million roads. But in but in response to what was happening, and we'll just make it simple, in the mainline church, uh they tended to circle the wagons around we have an angry, there's an angry God, and he is gonna demand just payment. Mm-hmm. Um so I think those two things uh I tapped the table. <laughs> He's a
0: table pounder. <laughs> uh,
1: I think those two things. Uh, and I'm just skimming on the surface, but have a lot to do with the answer to your question.
0: I think you're right, but um,
2: you know, I deal with a lot with just what happened in popular theology. Growing up in the South, growing up in in the uh, the gospel being taught around the heaven and hell dichotomy, and everything about the gospel is where are you going to go when you die? Yeah, which is a perversion of the teaching of the Bible. Absolutely. Um, so that so that it, it all comes around. Uh, the cross was Jesus paying the price for the sin. Now what happens then is, and this is where the torture aspect comes, uh, and I cringe every time I go somewhere and you get this, we're going to have a doctor tonight describe the sufferings of Christ. And so then you go into great meticulous um, expressions of the amount of pain, the amount of of suffering, the the uh, mm-hmm. the great levels of the torture of the act of crucifixion.
1: Alomel Gibson.
2: Yeah, alo Mel Gibson <laughs> with his kind of yeah. particular Calvinist or uh, Catholic view, um, and and when I hear people do that, you know, it's designed to stir up this emotive. He did that for me, and and I always say, no, 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 it's not it's not the amount of suffering. And I offend people sometimes because I say, listen, somebody who dies with a lingering death of disease, a wasting disease, suffers more than Jesus did physically. And then, people really get (laughs) angered. It's not the physical pain that brought our redemption. It's It's the value of the offered life and the power of that life to overcome death for us that we benefit from that. And there's the mystery because we go, how did that happen? How do I get it? And this is where I say he gives his life for us in order to give his life to us.
0: Hmm.
2: And there you come to life in the Holy Spirit. The actual life of God being given to us, that Christ can live his life in us, and therefore that uh, Steve Stewart can go around the world doing signs and wonders and and demonstrating the love of God, and the power of God, all over the earth. I think we'll end up always. I think we'll always end up cl- closer to one another yeah. until we until we settle on a detail that we have to have, and then and then we get messed up. Uh, I will give you another example because of a view of, a, of of what I call a false view of the of the uh, penal substitutionary atonement. It, g- it goes like this. If Jesus is going to die for us, he has to experience what we would experience. And so now they go, he had to go to hell. And now you get into the father and the son had to be separated, which is which creates an entire dis- disaster of ontology if you understand the, the unity of the trinity. <laughs>
0: Abs,
1: which is one of my <laughs> key issues as to why the father never was separated, why he didn't turn away from he the didn't? son. Yes, I believe entirely that that Christ experienced. The human pain, yes, of separation. Yes. but the actual reality, there never was any separation. No, and
2: if you read where that comes from, is, is Psalm, Psalm 22. twenty-two,
1: verse twenty-five. And if
2: you read Psalm twenty-two, yeah, 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 yeah. It's very clear. There's a resolution in there. We always stay on uh, the Father turned his back on the Son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But read the whole song. Yeah,
1: exactly. Now you and I are throwing verses because we tend to talk in short form. But for the sake of everybody, uh, in those days. It was a. It was an oral tradition. I've talked about this before. People had a, a an, an auditory memory that would amaze us now, because of course yeah. they were illiterate, yeah. and so it was almost short form in in those days. If I say, "The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want," we're all our mind goes through twenty three. Well, when he said, "My God, My God, why has Thou forsaken me?" That's the opening of twenty-two. Yes, and and that it wasn't that one verse. It's he's opening it up, and of course, the journey, the prophetic insight and journey that David's on is he feels forsaken, and then he gets all the way down to twenty-five and goes,
2: "Oh, I'm not forsaken.
1: I'm not forsaken. <laughs> we were never apart." Yes, we were never. It's it's like I was reading Habakkuk the other day. I think it's about verse thirteen. He says, "You're too holy." To look on sin, and we hear that all the time. Again, tends to be the penal substitution guys, PSA guys. We'll just make it easy. Um, but the verse isn't that. The verse says, "You're too holy to look on sin, so why do you?"
0: Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes.
1: And that's the real and point.
2: There's a very important uh, principle of interpretation that you just gave, and that is is, is in one of, your, one of your one of your questions here. Is that yeah? When they referred to a text, it was not saying that verse. Not most of the time. Once in a while you get a bidrash rash interpretation that's, yeah. that's, that's teasing out something from a verse. But most of the time it's like, go there and read. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's saying, this is that. Go read it.
1: Yes. yes. If they
2: read it, they would have seen the, that, oh my goodness, this is what the prophet, this is what the, Psalm, the psalmist was saying. This is what was prophesied about him. He's living it out but it comes to resolution. There would have been hope. Yes. That stuff that lets you say, and this is the third day.
1: Absolutely. Like, <laughs> Absolutely. Something is supposed to
2: happen on the third day.
1: And yeah. It, context and, and the, the first rule of context is read the, the whole thing. Yeah. Right? That's just so so vital. Now let me just throw one little thing in just for fun.
2: Yeah, fun.
1: Um, the Apostles Creed, probably the earliest of the creeds mm-hmm. that we have in existence. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, crucified and buried, uh, he descended into Hades. Yes, I, I read a whole book on that recently. That was fascinating, very scholarly, by the way. It was very scholarly uh, on what took place there, and and there seems to be a. Uh, a New Testament tradition that deals with it. I mean, 1 Peter 3, 18 to 21, 1 Peter uh, 4, verse 6, there is some, but not much. They don't touch it. Like, it's like Paul baptism of the dead, you know, for the dead. I mean, it's stuff that doesn't... But it seems to me at this point in my life. This is what I happen to believe this week, <laughs> 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 that that there was something where Christ went down, but he wasn't separated. And it, we go all the way back to Psalm 139. All right. If I did send hell, you were there. Shield, yeah. you were right. there. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think there was a work going on down there that has some pretty interesting implications for the work of the cross and the, the power of the cross beyond that finite time.
2: but We're so punctilier, we say that happened here. Yeah. And to the degree that Christ hung on the cross and said it's finished, something happened Mm -hmm. here, right? But then he relinquished his life. I mean, no man took his life. He gave it up. Now, the question then becomes people pressed me on, and maybe this is where you're headed. He descended into hell is the way it gets uh, transmuted. Yeah. Uh, and which it makes us go to the place of eternal torment. Yeah. Rather than, he descended into Hades, the place of the dead. Shale. Both the righteous yeah. and the unrighteous. Yeah. Okay, so, and there's no question, he goes to the place of the dead, and yes, something significant happened. For one thing, um, This is this is the finally. There's victory over death. There was no victory over death, and and also finally there is a victory over the powers. Yes. So whatever this descent means, it was absolute joy for some and terror or torment at least for the powers. Right. Yes. Yes. So. So people are, are often asking so so what happened when, when he died? And I, I heard you say and I agree with you completely. Well you're immediately with the Lord. But you're not resurrected yet. You're not yes. you're not in resurrection life yet. Yeah. Because you don't need a resurrection body when there's not a new creation.
1: I hmm. fully agree Interesting. with that. But I don't think that there's this long dormant nothing time until the resurrection. I I so we agree. I think I think I I go from one instant to the next in the presence of the. Lord. I'm
2: intrigued that he spent Sabbath in the, in the tomb hmm. or, or in the place of the dead. I'm intrigued by that whole thing. And yeah, that's. I think there's some stuff to tease out of that.
1: <laughs> so we're we're not that far apart at all, really. I would uh, think so. I would say I'm. You know, I've told you. I'm. I, if I had to take a label, I'd say Christus Victor. But part of it isn't just. Isn't just the classic argument of at the cross, and and uh, it's that at here's where we would overlap at the cross, he defeated the powers. I mean, that after all is at the heart of Christos' victory. It's the defeat of the powers. Where I am is, I think, and you've heard me preach this recently, even at the church, that that defeat came through that canonic power, that canonic love, that the powers threw everything at him, which is a mystery to us. How can that be? But I think that all, all of the, of the enemies thrust, and he never fought back. And so for me, that's, that's the aspect of Christus Victor that stands well, out strongly.
2: You, you probably know from hearing me in the past that I actually believe that the darkness on the day of the, the death of Christ, that the darkness was the physical manifestation of the powers
1: yes I and, agree with that too
2: and so that so that it was not it was not some it was not some natural event that that actually was um, what we would call a supernatural event but it was but it was and that the the intent of the powers is to destroy him
1: yes yes they
2: want they wanted him destroyed
1: yeah
2: Um but it could not; death could not destroy him. And then, of course, we'll go into um, a the power of an endless life. B, he was without sin, so there's no accusation. Yeah. There's no there's no condemnation about him. But but above all, that he could that he's simply could defeat them. He
1: yes. simply not greater. to mention he's the second person of the yeah. triune God. And that his, <laughs> yeah. that his
2: greatness his greatness is as you describe in his laying his life down. And that's what brings all sorts of moral questions to the forefront for living today. Yes. Why do we think that the exertion of power is the way to bring the kingdom?
0: This week's episode is brought to you by the Refer a Friend Discount. Have you been on a journey of compassion? Did it completely change your understanding of the kingdom of God? Do you wish all of your friends could experience a journey? Well, why don't you tell them about it? In fact, every time you refer a friend for their first journey of compassion, we'll apply a $100 credit towards your journey savings account. Haven't been on a journey yet? No problem. You're eligible for the same savings. All you have to do is invite a few friends to join you on your first journey. In the next 12 months, you and your friends could journey to Bulgaria, Kenya, India, the Philippines, Haiti, and Uganda. Contact journeys at impactnations.com for more information. And now, let's get back to the podcast.
2: I say this a lot. that As the powers manifest themselves on Earth, they always do it in what I would call secular salvation theories. So that if you go back to the last century and you look at Mao and Lenin and Stalin and Hitler and Mussolini, all of those guys were working out a secular eschatology that they believed would bring a new world and every one of them did it by the exertion of power yes not by the relinquishment of power yep. and we're being seduced in by the same thing today
1: oh you and i both agree on that 100%, 100%. yeah we're being 100%. so
2: seduced by who's that. we the church
1: um, the North American the, church.
2: Yeah, I would, I would have to say the church. North American. I would have to say, you know, you guys are Canadian, so I'm, I'm an American, <laughs> so I'll say we as an American as well. Yeah. Because... Um,
1: but I see it in Canada. It's maybe not quite as ramped up yet, but I see it that way too. And it's this age-old thing, and, and you know, it goes back forever, but it showed its head in our lifetimes strongly with the, the, the beginnings of the moral majority... And it's this deep-down thing uh, that that somehow we righteousness can can raise its strong arm, and we can make things right.
2: Well, see, I was a new Christian in the in the in the South, and we really did believe that we were a moral majority. That most people think this way. Now, the interesting thing is that, of course, most people don't think the way we think about morality nowadays. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sorry, that's just the truth. I know it is. And um, and then we did feel that if we all would just vote <laughs> yeah. and, and vote our moral conscience, we could get the right laws passed, and the right laws would save us.
1: And and, and, and voting voting righteously is so obvious as to what that is, yeah. you know. And
2: that's just mythology. Yes, yeah. uh, but it, it does speak to the hunger that's in us.
1: But it goes round what and came, round and round. It goes uh, Calvin in Geneva. We can legislate righteousness, yeah. and it just fell apart. Yeah. Um, Zwingli tried to do that in Zurich, and it just, it cannot happen. You know, one thing, just to insert this, uh, you and I both know this author, but one of the most important books that I read, and I probably read it 10 years ago, was Walter Wink, The Powers That Be. Yeah, And for 10 years, it has affected my theology, affected my preaching, really affects when I go, as I was last week with a room full of pastors and leaders in Guatemala, because I think the church is so unaware of the the level of where the battle really is, that it is the spiritual powers. And we, it, I said to them, it's like cutting off the heads of dandelions, saying, oh, we got that done. And then yeah. two days later, twice as many come back. Right. So for those watching and listening, I, I say hawk your watch and go buy a copy of Walter Wink. And I like the powers that be because it's a compression of his three books. Of his three books. The, yeah.
2: I have some fascination with Walter. Number one, because in one of his books, uh, he alludes to a coalition between what he calls charismatic Christians and, and more liberal Christians. In a coalition that he said, uh, he actually prophesied in his book. And I don't know if you remember that passage. Mm. Well, it's an interesting thing about that passage. Uh, Two things. Number one, most people don't know that Walter Wink had, as a teenager, a a charismatic conversion. He experienced the the Holy Spirit in the way that charismatics typically talk about it. And that marked him as a 16-year-old boy Mm -hmm. and then as a young man that went into theological studies. And he emphasized on the fact, again, that the powers... Which in his mind he sees he saw them more embodied in secular expressions of the powers. Yep. But he spoke of his uh, friendship with or appreciation for Pete Wagner,
1: mm-hmm. who
2: saw those powers more in terms of the ontological yes. beings that exist in the unseen realm. Mm-hmm. And he saw a coming together of these two. Well, one of the things that that I noticed that I've never heard people talk about—not really for this podcast—but I had to throw it out there is that the passage where wink prophesied a coalition of these two groups in the later editions of his book got modified really and i was and i was trying to pursue what was the genesis of that modification and wink died
1: yeah he did so i don't
2: know i don't know what that was but i would i would agree with you go read walter wink yeah. on the powers and that one book will will give you the the shorthand of what he did in three longer volumes, yeah. and
1: it's and it's really accessible. It makes you think new ways. If it's, if you've never gone down that road, you go whoa. But but it's not theologically inaccessible. No, all. it's not. The other
2: ones are get a little more dense and yeah. and and a little, a little more tedious for people. Um, I don't know how we're doing for time.
0: We're doing fine. Uh, we've got another 25 minutes probably. But We almost covered a question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're doing great. Actually, we've covered several things that I wanted to talk about today. Can Just uh, just to be really clear, do you guys mind just defining uh, the powers, uh, the powers that be? What, how do You you alluded to it just a second ago, but well, you kind of gave us that. two options. Let me come
2: back to that, if, right. I may, if I may, because I've misspe- misspoke, and I'm going to mm-hmm. correct myself. It was Psalm 82 that I was referring to, not Psalm 42. And this is a this is a this is a passage that blows people's mind. God has taken His place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. And then God goes into a diatribe against the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the weak, weak, uh, wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. He goes on to indict them, and he said, "But I have said you were gods." With Jesus quotes, "Sons of the Most High." Hmm. All of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, this passage has been the cause of, the pro- of all kinds of consternation. But a simple way of understanding it is to say that God created other divine beings other divine beings, I said, that can be called gods and that they are referred to as gods. Um, they're spoken of as witnesses to the original creation. All right? So cre- created prior to the creation. Um, but but then he's indicting the gods who sat in the council. And he says, but you will, you will die like men. So... There's a whole lot that has, is going on in my brain. And you talked about mor- morphine in your, in your understanding. One of the big problems people have is when 20-year-olds write books, then they have to defend them their whole life. <laughs> it's so much better to write a book. You're 60, to wait, <laughs> to wait. Yeah. 60 years old, you've changed your mind enough times yeah. to be a grown-up and mature. Um, I, I, th- I personally think that the gods are ontological beings and, and um, fallen ontological beings or said here of gods some people want to say angels angels is not the way they're used they're, the, the phrase is sons of God yep. um, who who are fallen This because you use the word God it throws people off because as soon as you use the word God people think there's only one God and therefore we have to use God that way and that is true there's no one like Yahweh Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by the way. Um, so these are lesser divine beings, created beings, having a beginning. And this passage indicates having an end. You will die like men, saying that there's a judgment coming for the powers. Now, what we the way we always see the gods, or if you will, the demons, is the word we use for, for their impact on an individual, is... Inspiring or empowering humans. So, um, Paul Johnson in his in his great um, massive book on uh, the twentieth century, um, he has a chapter called "The Devils," which is about the greatest you know the the great um, genocidal leaders of the 20th century, he calls them the devils. Well, that's what we do. We say there's something behind that. There's not just merely a human power. There's something behind that. And so what we see in history working is that the powers are at work and the Father is at work. And where we make the mistake, I think so often, is we go on a crusade to sort it all out. When we do, we typically take the side of the powers and do it with violence.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Because the cross is never, ever, ever about violence, and it's never about control, coercion, forcefulness in that sense. So where I see it, you know, there was a big move, that transformation video stuff move of Jeepers be 20 years ago now. And so I know in my church up in Canada I was with a, a group of pastors and they're getting all about we got to learn how to pull down the powers and of course some of that came from Peter Wagner and then but what we get with wink is much more those are very real but they have infiltrated our structures right right and that that's to me more helpful i'm I'm, I'm not big on you know, what's the principality over Albuquerque? Yeah. And let's pull them down. I'm, Spiritual mapping. Yeah, all that. I'm really interested in having an awareness of the influence of the powers in our power structure. And, um, you know, Wink says they come in through idolatry. And idolatry happens when um, any organization or structure. Uh, abdicates from its vocation. It's it's God-created purpose, and it becomes a selfish purpose. That always leads to it's idolatry, really yes. and that always leads to opening up where the powers come. Yes. So I think it is very relevant. These are not kind of theological out-there things. They're very relevant in understanding uh, The whole movement and what is going on. And in my opinion, as it comes in waves, I don't think this is the big one or anything, but we're in a time where that's really rising up all over the world, all over the world. We are seeing in impact nations, parts of the world that it is getting hard for us to get in to the country. And it's about the powers because it's getting hard for us to get in with clean water and medicine and business, but it's, it's a spiritual power that rises up.
0: And, uh, I like
2: two things that we know to do good works and suffering.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's, (laughs) that's my question then. So Jesus is confronting the powers. Uh, and we've talked about some of the ways that he did that, including on the cross. How do we in the 21st century confront the powers? Do we go and cast the demons out of institutions? Uh, what, what's Jesus calling us to do as his followers he came in
1: the opposite spirit always i i would never
2: listen i would never say that there's no part of it where intercessory prayer plays a role that we don't quite understand i won't say that because there's there is that but what i what i don't think is that any intercessor that i know of can go pray and then say okay i've got this done you can go do whatever you want now um I don't think we have that kind of awareness. So I think we pray and we act. And we act in in service and giving ourselves and laying our lives down. It's never going to be different. He called us to be like him. So we're going to go and lay our lives down. And big questions come then about, well, to what extent will that be hmm. and um, I'm'm I'm, I'm troubled by most of what I see we we're not going to defeat the powers by being a bigger bully than the powers
1: bingo yeah yeah I agree
0: hmm.
1: I absolutely uh, a thousand percent agree and the real power the real eternal cosmic power is, I come back to it, is the cross. And at the heart of that for me is this canonic love. He emptied himself and then the Father exalted him. And, you know, when we see it in practical terms, uh, imperfectly, of course, but you look at things like Gandhi and Martin Luther King, they didn't know how to handle... When they came in the opposite spirit, right? The powers that were behind all that stuff, ultimately they didn't—they didn't know what to do. It's Wink talks about the third way, right? You know. Yes. And uh, and those are classic examples of third way, which is to say we are not going to engage the powers on the battlefield of the powers. We are simply going to embrace the cross and let it do its work, which does include suffering and seeming failure and all kinds of stuff, but I think that's what we hold to no matter what. That's why Paul said that I might know him, we love that, but the second half and the fellowship of his sufferings.
2: You uh, you talked about the 16th century a lot, and I've always been intrigued with the 16th century because it was in those days that, look, the church, the Catholic church had all the power and they had sec- it had secular and um, the um ecclesiastical power and Martin Luther said no I'm not submitting to your power interesting thing happened uh, Luther survived because a german prince defended him yes and then that inspired all over europe other people to say no and and other local powers and militias to align themselves around these reformers Typically, it was inspired, what most people don't know, it was typically a tax revolt <laughs> because it was typically keeping the Catholic Church from from transferring the money in, the, in a local region to go help with the building of St. Peter's Basilica. And so, so you had these city-states forming. But the interesting thing that happened was all of the first wave of the Reformers had exactly the same worldview as the Catholic Church did, which was our strength, our, our being sustained is by our alliance with the powers. And, and then what happened was there were, there were other people who said, well, we want to reform this also. Yeah. And when they rose up and said, we want to reform this also, um, what, what you had happening was you had the state churches arising. So Lutheranism is becoming the state church and the Reformed Church is becoming the state church. And Europe had a season where it was just filled with state churches and they basically had the same kind of power, the power of the sword, that the Catholic Church had. These radical reformers came along and they said, but we have some other reforms to make. And they did it at the peril of their lives. So the only way they could do it was to be willing to die. And it was very strange to us, but those early reformers were willing to die for baptism.
1: Yes. And it's very interesting because the only clear point of agreement ever in the uh, in the 16th century, between the Roman Catholic Church and the state church was the, the execution of yes. Anabaptists. Yes. It's just that one side said we'll drown them, the other side said we'll burn them. <laughs> but that's the only thing they agreed upon. Hmm. And uh, and it's a pretty consistent thing that that it looks like you're moving. We'll call it progressing, but it's it's just morphing. And and the the uh, rigid worldview is a morphed rigid worldview.
2: Right, but what most people don't know in the West was that when that came over to the colonies, <laughs> for example, yeah, the way it expressed itself was there should be no state religion because. You had the Catholic hegemony. Then you had the Protestant hegemony, state churches, which all used the power of the sword. In America, the the people who founded America said, we're not going to give the power of the sword to the church. So we're not going to have state churches. And whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, that gave birth to the separation of church and state.
1: Hmm. But it also, a little variation on that, in, in 1630, um, when they arrived in Massachusetts Bay, the Puritans, uh, who, who uh, un, unlike the pilgrims, they tended to be a little more um, affluent and so forth. But they came to get away from persecution, yes. 1630. 1636 was when they expelled the first people who didn't agree with them. And uh, if you were expelled in 1636, that was a problem. You weren't going to drive down to the latest Howard Johnson. right? So only six years later, the intolerance started to show itself. The the, the powers are incredible. It remakes
2: itself. Yeah,
1: it just keeps remaking itself. I have have a
2: whole other line that fascinates me about uh, the two original uh, colonies in America, Plymouth and Jamestown. One of them was based on religious freedom and had no slaves. And Jamestown was based on economics and had slaves. And they had immediately two visions of my country, two visions of America in those two colonies. Strangely enough, this is way out of way field, Abraham Lincoln establishes Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. as a means of identifying with the Plymouth community rather than the Jamestown community. Because what? What was his great project? Let's end slavery. The vision of America doesn't include slavery. The economic vision of America includes slavery. The the spiritual vision of America did not. So we have all kinds of fascinating trails we can run
1: down. We have lots more we could talk about. (laughs) Would, Would you come back sometime? I would love to come
0: back. This has been really good. Um... Bringing it down real practical, not to say that, you know, Plymouth isn't practical, but uh, in the here and now, we've talked a little bit today about uh, you guys mentioned the danger of reading the Bible kind of one verse at a time and not not reading it in the context and things like that. And I think our consumer society, you just look at devotionals that sell like crazy and you know yeah. you, every day you get one verse and then the author will write a full page on that one verse, and if you don't go back and read it in its context, then you're in danger, I think. Um, but can you tell us just give us some real practical ideas on how to read the scriptures well with wisdom? I'll throw it
1: real quick. Two things, two books, because you, know, you know me, I always throw books at people. They're both by Gordon Fee. Uh, one is called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's an old classic, probably written 40 years ago. And another one is on hermeneutics by Fee, which is uh, God and the Spirit. Neither of them is long, neither of them is difficult, but they, they, they deal with hermeneutics. They deal with understanding the context.
2: I would say some kind of similar things more uh, just practical about how to get it in. First is reading a devotional verse for the day is 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 a truncated way to take the scriptures in. Read a book at a time.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
2: And especially nowadays listen to a book at a time. Whether we know it or not the Bible was a heard book before it was a read book, yes. and it is in every culture. It's a hearing experience, and faith comes by hearing. And what happens is you get saturated in it, and you get the sense of a book, not just, not just the micro. And when people say, well, I want to do Bible study. I want to dig in and get the details. Then good. Sit down and listen to a whole book of the Bible every day for a week.
0: Hmm.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And you'll get soaked. Yeah. One of the things with the, the John series is I'm, one of the things I'm going to do is teach in context. So I usually give some background. This is what was going on, even in the in the upper room tonight, we're, we're on the farewell discourse. This was what was going on. And uh, because if you don't understand that, then it's awfully easy to misinterpret well and again reading
2: I, I think I do some of the same things I'm teaching through Matthew one thing I'm doing is I'm taking longer passages than normal so I want to preach 15 20 verses instead of one or two verses and I, I'm I, I'm always sort of tedious because I'm always telling them why this is written this way the that the author had something in mind he was taking them down a path and so I try to bring some some big pictures um, anyway my, my my biggest thing is understand context means not just context of the written page either what was the idea of kingdom in first century when you're in Roman occupation and you're wanting the kingdom of God to come you cannot eliminate the political aspect that there's something in the world that was happening it was not an ethereal kingdom of going to heaven it was what was going to happen here and so when Jesus was speaking kingdom, he was he was transforming their view of the kingdom. He was giving them a view of kingdom that meant they could live it no matter who was in power. Yeah. No matter who was sitting in the position of power. They were living in a kingdom that transcended them all. Yeah, that's true. In the here and now. Yeah. And then Impact Nations is on the right page. Give people water. Give people food. Give people give people healing. Make their lives better. Do simple things. You change the world by an act of kindness.
0: Yeah. Amen. Amen. I agree. Alan, do you do you have anything you want to tell listeners about as far as what you're up to these days? Any uh, any teachings you want to plug or podcast from or like that?
2: No, I'd, I would welcome people to tune in to what we're doing at NewLifeCity.org and, and hear some of the teachings there if they want to. Uh, but you, you've got a great podcast going. I'm advocating hearing this one. <laughs> I've been enjoying listening
0: and thus concludes another episode of the Impact Nations podcast. It was great to have Alan with us, and we'll definitely be having him back again. Thank you to those listeners who have sent us in some questions. I think we addressed a few of them today. If you have any questions for us, email them to podcast at impactnations.com, and we'll do our best to fit them into a future episode. In the meantime, visit the Impact Nations Facebook page to learn more about what we're up to these days, and have a great week.